during the weeks until Easter, I want to tell you the story of a day in the life, or better yet, uh, tell you the story of the life and a day of Jesus. A life that's the light of humanity, the light that shines brightest on the darkest of Earth's days. And I plan to do this in a narrative form, which means I'm going to be telling you the story. Today's kind of a prequel, but we're going to be telling the story right up until Easter morning. Um, I'd encourage you to be here every week. The story will build as we go on. And if you want to go further into the story, then join us on Wednesday nights in the lobby. There's 20, 25 of us who meet out there, and we're going to go into the text, the biblical text, and think together about what they mean for us. I found over the years that many people are confused about how the crucifixion of Jesus came about. I mean, wasn't he fabulously popular? Didn't he enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to a hero's welcome? How could everyone love him on Sunday but crucify him the following Friday? Doesn't seem to make sense. Well, to understand all that, how all of that happened, we have to go back a ways. We have to go back months and even years. In fact, we have to go back centuries. Because, you see, Jesus lived in a country that had been divided by civil war. That happened hundreds of years before he was born. And yet, even after the country was unified, it was unified by a foreign power, conqueror, the north of the country and the south were still uneasy with each other. Over the decades and centuries, they had developed distinct identities. And interestingly, Jesus could claim to be a child of both. He was born in the south, but he was raised in the north. Now, I said the country was divided and then united by a foreign conqueror, but that's only part of it. After the first foreign conqueror, Babylon, there was a second, Persia. After the second was a third, Greece, and after the third was a fourth, Rome. Rome was actually the controlling power when Jesus was on earth. During all those years of foreign rule, the northern part of the country, which is where Jesus was brought up, was significantly shaped by contact with other cultures. They were especially influenced by the Greeks, who built Greek cities in the north. We don't really read about them. Jesus pretty much stayed away from the Greek cities. In, in Galilee. But they built Greek cities, large cities in the north, which were home to Greek-style temples, where Greek gods were worshipped in Greek ceremonies. Now, some of the people in the north, Jesus and his followers would be among them, resisted this. The, some of the people despised these idolaters and wanted to throw them out. But others accepted this pluralistic culture and even compromised with it. Because of that, people in the South felt a kind of moral and intellectual superiority to the people in the North. So you remember when Jesus first met one of the disciples, Nathaniel, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth, one of the towns in the North? There weren't nearly as many foreigners who lived in the South. The temple, the pride of Jews the world over, was there. Jerusalem, the center of religious life and of Jewish government, was there. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus was born in the South. He was born in Bethlehem, which was just a couple miles from Jerusalem. But his parents were from the North, 
And after a few years, they moved back there. During his youth, Jesus often went south with his family to Jerusalem for the festivals, especially the big three festivals, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we also know as Passover, and the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. Every adult male Jew was supposed to attend these three feasts. There were seven feasts, but these three, every adult male Jew was supposed to attend. But entire families went too, especially for Passover. Imagine that there was a law in Michigan that you must join your family for Thanksgiving. That is the law. You have to join your family for Thanksgiving. And imagine further that every family, numbering millions of people, have to meet in the same city, say in Detroit. Imagine what it would be like. The outbound lanes are open to inbound traffic because everybody's going inbound. And countless people are pouring into the city. There are traffic jams and overcrowded hotels. Shops are springing up all over town. Restaurants do a half year's business in a week. The police chief cancels all vacations, and everyone has to be on duty. And, And the whole thing has sort of a vacation, holiday, celebration feel to it. That's what Jerusalem was like during the feasts, especially the Feast of Passover. Thousands and tens of thousands of northerners would travel south to Jerusalem. And they'd do it in huge groups, caravans. It was great fun for the kids who would get to play with their cousins and their friends. It was great fun for the parents who would rendezvous with extended family and co-workers and catch up on all the news and enjoy long conversations. Everybody in the country had vacation during this time. It was during one of the feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, which, by the way, was a favorite with kids. It was like holding Thanksgiving in a giant campground with all of your friends and neighbors. It was during Tabernacles that signs of conflict really became apparent. In those days, Jesus was wildly popular in the north. He could get a crowd of 10,000 people together. But in the south, he was not so well known. So when the Feast of Tabernacles came around, his brothers urged him to go to Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem and recruit followers from there. They told him, everyone who wants to be anyone has to go to Jerusalem. If you want followers, go to Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't go, at least not at first. He waited a little while, and then he went during the feast. When the scene moves to Jerusalem, it's obvious that there has been trouble. His enemies, many of them probably from the north, have filed a complaint with the authorities who agree to bring Jesus in for questioning. The crowds are talking about it. Even the Jerusalemites are caught up in this drama. Some of the people, this is John 7, 25, of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Isn't this the guy? The Pharisees, concerning whom Jesus has been unstinting in his criticism, urged the council to send a police detail to arrest Jesus. Well, the arrest didn't happen. But from that time on, there is a growing tension between Jesus and the civil and religious leaders. Even in the north, his popularity begins to wane. The crowds are no longer as big, and the synagogues are no longer as welcoming. In fact, some of them say, you can't come. When winter of that year arrives, there was another fracas in Jerusalem. Jesus went for the Feast of Dedication. That's Hanukkah. 
He went there for Hanukkah. Before the feast was over, he got into a serious dispute with some Judeans, some southern Jews. Things heated up, and before it was over, people were picking up rocks to throw at Jesus. Now, that's interesting. They were in Solomon's colonnade at the time. That's not a place where one would expect to find rocks lying about to throw. So where do they get them? It's quite possible they brought the rocks with them. If that's the case, they were planning to stone Jesus before he even arrived. They staged the argument, you can read about it in John chapter 10, as a pretext for what they were planning to do all along, which was stone Jesus for blasphemy. They tried to kill Jesus right there and then, but they failed. He left Jerusalem, and he went east, and he crossed the Judean border at the Jordan and entered the neighboring province of Perea. For a while, that became his base of operations. But when his friend Lazarus died, Lazarus just lived just outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. When his friend Lazarus died, Jesus went back to the southern province of Judea and once again, this is John chapter 11 now, encountered considerable hostility. The chief priests, including the high priest and his successors, had come to see Jesus as a threat, a threat they were determined to end. Until that time, almost all the hostility Jesus faced had come from the Pharisees, you see. And it's all, it was all on religious grounds, but not anymore. Now, ominously, the governmental authorities, people with connections, have become hostile. They've joined the Pharisees. Sadducees and Pharisees conspiring together. It was unheard of. They didn't do things together, but now they were working together to get rid of Jesus. Behind all of the intrigues and maneuverings stood one man. His name was Annas. He was a former high priest. He was the former high priest, if you will, and the most powerful man in worldwide Judaism. And don't think because he was the former high priest that he'd lost his influence. This guy was a mover and a shaker. He was a political power broker unrivaled in his ability to get things done. He had clout, even with the Roman procurator. So much clout, in fact, that he managed to get Rome to appoint seven of his sons and one of his sons-in-law as the high priest after him. There'd never been anything like it. Annas sat like a giant spider over this vast web of political and financial dealings. He pulled strings and things happened. That's why, although the high priest is Caiaphas at the time of Jesus' arrest, the troops, the people who were dispatched to arrest Jesus, first bring him not to Caiaphas, but to Annas, who is Caiaphas's father-in-law. Annas was used to getting what he wanted, and he wanted that troublesome northern prophet Jesus out of the way. He despised him. By John 11, the opposition in the south now is firmly established. The leaders have gone beyond hoping to get rid of Jesus. They've made a decision to get rid of Jesus. But Jesus got wind of the conspiracy. See, he had followers, covert followers, even in the highest echelons of power, Think of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who actually sat on the ruling council. 
learning what they were planning, he decided to leave the city. He took his disciples, this time not across the border. They remained in Judea, but they headed to the edge of the desert north of Jerusalem. I say he took his disciples, but the de facto leader of the disciples, Peter, does not seem to have been present. He hasn't shown up in the biblical text for a while. In Matthew's account, he's missing from chapter 19 to chapter 26. In Luke, he's missing from chapter 12 to chapter 18. And, excuse me, in John, he's missing from chapter 6 to chapter 13. You notice his absence, especially in John chapter 11, when it's Thomas, not Peter, who acts as spokesman for the disciples. We don't know why Peter was missing. It could be lots of reasons. You remember he was married? Peter was a married disciple. You remember that his mother-in-law had been quite ill? Perhaps he was forced to go home for a funeral or to make arrangements for the family. We don't really know. All we know that is in the gospel accounts, there is this time frame in which Peter is conspicuously absent. While he was staying in the village on the edge of the desert, Jesus uses that time primarily to teach his closest followers. This is instruction time now. As Passover drew near, one of the three big feasts, every adult male has to go to Jerusalem for Passover, the disciples must have wondered what Jesus intended to do. Would he go back to the feast, even though the authorities there were on the lookout for him? Or would he skip it altogether? Sometime before the Passover, the week of Passover, Jesus left the village they'd been staying in, and instead of heading down to Jerusalem, he went the opposite direction. But when his path, this is intentional, intersected with the eastern trade routes, he met up with the caravans of Galilean pilgrims headed for Passover, and he joined them. And then they traveled en masse with the festival goers. They recrossed the Jordan into Judea, and they entered into the ancient city of Jericho. The disciples have traveled this route with Jesus many times. Over the previous three years, they have accompanied him to the feasts repeatedly, including Passover. But this time, it feels different. This time, Jesus is leading the throngs of pilgrims. When they come to Jericho, there's excitement in the air. People are saying things like, he's back. Luke says that many of the festival goers, these are Galilean pilgrims headed down to Jerusalem for Passover. Many of them were expecting Jesus to establish the kingdom of God on earth immediately. They thought when he arrives in Jerusalem, it's all going to happen. As they go along from town to town, other festival goers join them, and the crowds swell bigger and bigger. There is a revolutionary fervor in the air, and without doubt, many of the men are carrying weapons. On Sunday afternoon, they arrive on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the city. Jesus has friends living in one of the villages on the ridge, and he borrows a donkey and its colt from them. He does this very intentionally. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah had written, Shout, Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the disciples are bowled over. Jesus 
intends to declare himself Israel's long-promised, long-expected king. And all of this isn't lost on the crowds either. They begin picking up palm branches to scatter on the road in front of Jesus. This is the day we call Palm Sunday. They start taking off their jackets and laying them on the road for the donkey to walk on. This is exactly, if you know Jewish history, what happened once before when Israel announced the coming of a new king. Then as Jesus descends the road into the city, people begin to shout, Hosanna, save, blessed is the king of Israel. So imagine this gigantic crowd. They're sweeping into the city, a city under foreign domination, while people are shouting, blessed is the king of Israel. Now, you need to know that there had been riots at Passover in the past. And so during these days, there is always a large military presence in Jerusalem for the feast. The week before the feast, troops were brought in from Caesarea, which was the Roman the capital of Roman government in the province. Troops were brought in to patrol the city and to prevent riots. So with that as background, we understand why Mark says what he says what he says. His gospel tells us that they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. The disciples were astonished because Jesus had positively avoided public displays like this in the past. He had run from them. This time it was his idea. They had never seen him like this before. It almost took their breath away. They were astonished, but the crowds were afraid. That's because the troops stationed in Jerusalem for Passover had in the past brutalized festival goers when the crowds got out of control. They were afraid it might happen again, this time to them. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd were both so annoyed with Jesus and so afraid of inciting a military response that they said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. These ridiculous shouts are going to get us all killed. Tell them to be quiet. Now, you have to think that the disciples, especially the 12, who've been with Jesus for three years, they've lived with him night and day, are in their glory. This is what they've been waiting for. This trip to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way like one of the kings of old, had fired their imaginations and their ambitions, so much so that two of them go to Jesus privately to request positions of power when the kingdom is established. They felt like the campaign staff of some presidential candidate who's up by 20 points in the polls. They didn't know why Jesus had waited so long, why he didn't do this last year during that, that period of great popularity, but they're glad he's doing it now. And they're not just glad, they're ecstatic. Even Judas is glad. So don't forget Judas, he's always in the picture. He thought this day would never come. He's been impatient, he's been angry, but he's feeling really good right now. When Jesus arrives in the city, so here are these throngs of festival goers. They come through the eastern gate. When Jesus arrives in the city, he goes straight to the temple. Where else would he go? And the text says, he looked around. The atmosphere is absolutely electric. The crowds are on edge. The military is on edge. Everyone seems to be on edge, including Jesus. 
But strangely, instead of proclaiming himself king or rallying the troops, he looks around and then he turns around and he walks right back out of the city. He goes out to Bethany where his friends Lazarus, Martha, and Mary live. And he spends the night there. The disciples are puzzled, maybe even dismayed. Why doesn't Jesus do something? But the next day when he goes back into the city, he does something. He goes straight to the temple and he begins a one-man riot. Everybody's watching and they don't really get what's going on. What is he doing? Doesn't look like he's rallying troops, but he is doing something. He drives the sacrificial animals and the people who are selling them right from their stalls in the court of the Gentiles. Makeshift stalls put up in the court of the Gentiles. He drives them right out. He's made a whip of cords and he's driving them out. He violently overturns the money changers' tables, the money exchange tables. He's like a man on fire. But when it's over, instead of rallying the people to himself, he starts teaching people in the temple courts like nothing unusual had happened. He's doing what he's done a hundred times before. Again, the disciples are puzzled. He's taught in the temple courts many times. But they thought that stage of things, the time for talk was over and the time for action had arrived. But when he goes back to the city the following day, he does the same thing. He teaches. Now, on that day, that would be Tuesday of Passion Week. He has one run in after another with the authorities. But it doesn't look like he's launching a revolution. And each night he leaves the city and he goes back to Bethany. And that's when something happened. It doesn't seem like a big thing on the surface, but it was. His young friend Mary, who lived in Bethany, took a fabulously expensive bottle of scented ointment, broke it, and poured the contents on Jesus' head. It was an anointing of sorts. But one of the disciples was outraged by that. He said, why this waste? This bottle could have been sold for a thousand bucks. And we could have used that money to help the poor. As soon as he said it, some of the other disciples joined in with him. Yeah, he's right. That's right. But Jesus looks at them and he says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? He then told them that Mary did a beautiful thing, something that's going to be remembered forever. And then went on to say weird stuff about her preparing his body for burial. Now, one of the guys complaining, in fact, the first one, the one who started it, was Judas. And apparently he didn't take Jesus' rebuke very well. The text says, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. Judas was stung by Jesus' rebuke, and he was angry. He probably told himself that he had been misunderstood and mistreated yet again. He told himself that he had every right to be angry. Jesus had no right to talk to him like that, especially in front of everybody. He'd been misused. And besides that, what was Jesus doing? He had Jerusalem in the palm of his hand, and he let the opportunity slip away. We don't know. Maybe he told himself that going to the chief priest wasn't wrong because they would never really get their hands on Jesus. How many times had they tried? And yet always failed. Or maybe he thought an attempt to arrest Jesus was the only thing that would rouse him or his followers to fight. Maybe Judas said to himself, talk, 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 I'm sick of it, it's time for action. And if Jesus won't take it, I will. 
I'm going to make something happen. Whatever he was thinking, and we don't know, he was at best self-deceived, and at worst, a thief and a traitor. So that's how we get to the life in a day. Jesus is in Jerusalem. There are hundreds of thousands of people there. Pilgrims from all over Israel and all over the world have come. Judas has gone to the chief priests who have been trying to get rid of Jesus at least since the previous September. And he's promised to deliver him into their hands. Annas, remember him? He's pleased. When he first decided to arrest Jesus, he couldn't see how it could be done during the feast. In fact, the word was, but not during the feast. It was too risky. It could start a riot, and that would bring a military response, and that would displease the Romans with whom he had to work. But now he has someone on the inside, someone who can deliver Jesus up quietly. He interprets the appearance of Judas as providential and congratulates himself on how once again he's managed things so efficiently. The story of the day in a life of Jesus is filled with people who are living in denial of the truth. Greedy Annas, who pictures himself as the servant of God. Pilate, who denies his own responsibility to lead. Peter, who denies his Lord and denies reality about himself. And Judas. When we think about how evil, how monstrous the thing was that Judas did, we need to remember that this monstrous deed did not come out of nowhere. It came out of him. John tells us that Judas had been misappropriating the group's funds. How long that was going on, we don't know. But Judas was living a lie. He was not a true man. He lied to others. No doubt he lied to himself. Think about what his life must have been like during those days between when he slipped off to the chief priest and made his deal and when he actually did the deed. Do you ever think about it? When he first went to see the chief priest, he, he made excuses to others. He had to have some excuse to go. And to himself. His hands were sweaty. His knees were weak. And after that, he's always looking out of the corner of his eye, overly attentive to every detail, asking questions he wouldn't normally ask. So, so when are we going to be in Jerusalem? Are, are we going anywhere besides the temple today? Where are we going to eat? Who's going to put us up for the night? knew it was wrong, but he justified it in his own mind. Like all deceivers, he was profoundly self-deceived. Sometimes his brain raced so fast that he felt like he was losing his mind. I wonder how many times he thought about going back on his deal. But he had taken money. If he backed out now, who knows what would happen to him. He'd be exposed, shamed, probably thrown in prison. You didn't betray a guy like Annas and get away with it. But handing Jesus over, it was wrong. He knew it. It was horrible. And then he would fall back on the idea that he had been mistreated. You can justify anything. He would justify the evil he was about to do on the basis of the evil as he perceived it that people had done to him. It wasn't his fault. It was somebody else's fault. It couldn't be his. He was forced into it. If people had listened to him, this never would have happened. He threw thoughts of mistreatment 
on his anger like a man throws logs on a fire because the only way he could do this thing is if he was really angry. Now, he had to be around Jesus and the other disciples all day long. It took everything he had to act natural. He made the same small talk. He waxed eloquently about all of his favorite subjects. At the times of prayer, three times a day, he prayed. He did all the religious things that religious people do. He said all the things that they say. He acted like everything was fine. And all the while, his soul was being eaten alive. I wonder what he thought whenever he turned to find Jesus looking at him. He knows. He must have said to himself, he must know. And then he would have to stop himself from shaking or running or blurting out what he'd done and begging for forgiveness. Wherever he was, in the temple, Simon's house, with Lazarus and his sisters, he would look to see if Jesus was looking at him. And he would think, he knows. He knows. And you know what? He did know. Jesus came to this day, his hour, as he called it, with eyes wide open, knowing that he was being betrayed into the hands of sinners for the sake of sinners. When he looked at Judas, he knew. And the remarkable thing is that he loved him anyway. And you know what? When he looks at us, he knows everything. And the remarkable thing, he loves us anyway. Judas managed. It took everything he had, but he managed not to blurt out what he'd done and beg for forgiveness. And that was his biggest mistake. Don't let us make the same mistake. Okay, we're going to pick up the story next week. And it gets even more tense as we go. Let's pray. Lord, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. He did not go to the cross by accident. He went for us. The very people who were responsible. Lord, we don't know enough. We haven't experienced enough of the wondrous love of God. We pray that we might know it. And rejoice in it. 
the love of Calvary. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing.